G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, worker stories and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Radio in Melbourne with the financial support of the Community Radio Foundation. We come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. A lot has happened in Australia since the 1970s, including the amount of workers who take up union membership. The number of union members in Australia has declined from around 2.5 million in 1976 to 1.5 million in 2016. During the same period, the union member share of all employees, or union density, has fallen from 51% to 14%. Young workers are much less likely to be union members than older workers, and casual and or part-time employees are less likely to be union members than full-time workers and permanent employees. Now, this information is important because at the same time, as union membership has gone down, job insecurity has increased, wages are flatlining, and not only are conditions being undermined, but it is getting to a stage in Australian workplaces where employers are emboldened enough in some workplaces to make demands such as how much a worker smiles. Many would say that the lack of union density and the downturn in workers' rights go hand in hand. We talked to Tim Nelthorpe from the National Union of Workers about the continuing battle for workers' rights now that the LNP government, the Liberal National Party government, has been returned federally, a government that is notorious for its anti-union legislation. But first, some union news. Massive restructuring at Woolworths announced on June the 5th has meant the abolition and rebranding of roles throughout the business operation, leading to massive redundancies and the situation that employees are being encouraged to reapply for the new similar positions at massive reductions in pay. One employee who has worked for the organisation in the payroll area for 20 years was told she could apply for a similar role with extra responsibilities, but her pay would be cut from $65,000 to $45,000. Otherwise, she could apply for redeployment elsewhere at Woolworths or take redundancy. Two unions are involved in the Woolworths workplace, the SDA, the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association, and more recently, RAFU, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. The SDA has lodged a dispute against Woolworths in the Fair Work Commission. Separately, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union is going through the disputes procedure in Woolworths Enterprise Agreement. RAFU spokesperson Josh Cullinan, Secretary of RAFU, said Woolworths' claim that there would be no net job losses was a furphy and estimated 2,000 or 3,000 jobs would be lost, saving Woolworths at least $100 million a year. Our best estimate is the number of roles being made redundant is 10,000 or 10 per store and seven to eight new roles are being created per store. So there are two to three people who would theoretically end up surplus to requirements. He said, 
Thousands of staff were also being asked to accept lower wages for doing the same job, Josh Cullinan said. Someone who may have been earning $70,000 a year will move to a $45,000 or $50,000 a year wage. Many of those workers will lose $400 a week for effectively doing the same job, maybe with different titles, he said. It's a furphy to distract from what's going on, which is massive wage cuts for thousands of staff. The SDA and RAFU also criticised Woolworths for failing to consult staff before implementing the new model and giving staff too little time to consider their positions. Rafu said this is declaring war on workers and it is exactly what Woolworths has done. No consultation, no notice of redundancy letters, no opportunity to have a support person, thousands of jobs gone, massive wage cuts for others and huge roster changes, a complete and utter disregard for staff welfare. Workers now have a choice. Fighting back is what we do. It's what we did when we found out on the 5th of June and we won't stop, Josh Cullinan said. (laughs) Meanwhile at Coles... The Coal Supermarket Group says it will cut $1 billion in costs from its business over the next four years by using technology and automation to do manual tasks while cutting staff in office roles. Ahead of its first strategy day since being spun out from the West Farmers Conglomerate as an independent company, Coal said the savings were needed to offset rising costs, including energy and wages. Technology will deliver savings in the form of warehouse and stockroom automation, installing more self-service checkouts, including for customers using trolleys, upgraded anti-theft systems and labour planning tools. Surprise raids by the Fair Work Ombudsman on Wollongong businesses on June the 13th showed that wage theft is alive and well. The Fair Work Ombudsman revealed it had recovered almost $130,000 for 458 employees at 36 businesses after conducting surprise audits at workplaces across the city. Revelations less than half the Wollongong businesses raided by Australia's workplace watchdog were obeying the law shows wage theft and lawlessness on a massive scale, said Arthur Rorris, the head of the South Coast Labor Council. Wage theft is no accident, is it? it is a business model. The offenders have nothing to fear from this government, only the unions, said a union source. The raids targeted takeaway food outlets, cafes and restaurants, accommodation providers, pubs and bars and retail businesses. In total, 489 businesses were audited in Wollongong, Albury, Woodonga and Ballarat. Almost half of them were not compliant. The most common breach identified was employers not paying their staff correctly, either by underpaying the minimum hourly wage or not paying correct penalty rates. Other breaches included not providing proper pay slips. The Fair Work Ombudsman issued 16 formal cautions, 37 on-the-spot fines and two compliance notices in Wollongong. In Tasmania, the AEU, the Australian Education Union, report that the Hodgson Liberal Government has made a backdated one-year agreement with a 2.1% pay rise 
offer across the public sector with a commitment to discuss the issues of class sizes, education support staff and other conditions that teachers have put on the table. The government wants a commitment that no industrial action will take place during negotiations and that the offer will go off the table by June the 26th. The membership of the AEU are yet to vote on the offer. In the aftermath of the Australian Federal Police, the AFP's raid on a journalist's home in Canberra and the ABC studios in Sydney, the Media Entertainment Arts Alliance joined more than three dozen of Australia's most prominent and acclaimed journalists and media organisations in publicly calling for urgent changes to the law to provide better protection for whistleblowers and journalists. National Secretary of the MEAA, Marcus Strom, addressed membership, saying that an open letter published in all capital city daily newspapers on June the 14th was addressed to Prime Minister Scott Morrison, Leader of the Opposition, Anthony Albanese, and all members of both Houses of Federal Parliament. We say prompt action is needed to protect our democracy for all Australians. The open letter follows the raids by the Australian Federal Police last week of the home of News Corp Australia journalist Annika Smithhurst and the officers of the ABC. Strom said these raids are after recent national security laws and the prosecution of whistleblowers Richard Boyle, David McBride and Witness K all demonstrate the public's right to know is being harmed. Truth-telling is being punished. Intimidation and harassment of journalists is in danger of being normalised, said Mr Strom. It is also clear from the global response to the recent raids that Australia's proud reputation around the world as a free and open society is under threat. We urge Parliament to legislate changes to the law to recognise and enshrine a positive public interest protection for whistleblowers and for journalists, he said. Without these protections, Australians will be denied important information. It is their right as citizens to have. Last week, hundreds of journalists in newsrooms around Australia stood together to say journalism is not a crime. The issue of rising homelessness and the knock-on effect of the sell-off of public housing on housing prices has been shoved into the limelight once again with the death of a young homeless woman sleeping rough in Royal Park, Melbourne. Courtney Heron, the 26-year-old, was beaten to death. Alarm bells has been going off as more and more people are appearing on our streets sleeping rough and the homeless population of older women is increasing exponentially. Despite calls for new homes, fair go for pensioners and other public housing advocates say the federal government and state governments have committed themselves to a system that props up commercial enterprises called social housing and a massive sell-off of public land stock to private developers at below market prices. Both state and federal governments, Labor or Liberal, are committed to the idea of providing affordable housing within the private rental market. As a result, the public is paying a high price for the real estate and property owners' windfall. Lou Wheeler from Fair Go from Pensioners said, There is such a lot of toxic deceit going on. Social housing actually means now community housing, even though the government tells you that their definition means both community housing and public housing. But what is meant by it is community housing. And then they mumble further by talking about affordable housing, which is ill-defined. 
Social housing is run by private organisations where tenants are subject to their rules and their rental structures. Public housing tenants are tenants of the Human Services Department who has public accountability and they pay rent at a percentage of their income, thus creating affordable housing. Many working families over the years have benefited from this system of affordable, stable housing. Now, the new government strategy to offload public housing to the private sector is being cemented into the system with Commonwealth rental assistance being extended to public housing tenants at a cost of about $5.2 billion a year based on 2016 figures. Now, this money will go into private hands when the old system made rental assistance unnecessary to the public housing tenants because rent was set as the percentage of what a person earns. In the present commercial model, the private organisation, the social or community housing operator, becomes the landlord, sets the price for rent, and if you do not earn enough money, you will not be eligible for a home. This is exactly like any private operator and still leaves people on the streets. Lou Wheeler said, We hear that in Victoria, the Community Housing Industry Association, Victoria, is lobbying for management transfer of a further 10,000 public housing properties to community housing. Providers. This is in addition to management transfer of 4,000 public housing properties to Community Housing Agency on a long-term basis under Homes for Victorians reform initiatives. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Last Saturday, a group of people gathered at a forum called Building Resistance, a post-election socialist discussion day, to dissect how the future for working people can be improved in the present Australian political environment. In fact, the forum was organised before the election results since the organisers do not believe merely changing one type of government with another will necessarily deal with the issues working people deal with every day and that the union movement is a mere shadow of the electoral process. I spoke to Tim Nelthorpe from the National Union of Workers who presented some ideas to the forum for an insight into some possible future strategies. So, I mean, what I spoke about on um, on the weekend uh, was more about the direction of the union movement broadly um, in relation to, I suppose, the way both uh, the, uh, the ACTU and, and trade hall councils in various states are directing their resources. Um, I mean, the Change the Rules campaign was symptomatic of, of a, a long-term approach over the last, uh, specifically the last 10 years, uh, to dedicate um, significant uh, resources towards electoral campaigning um, at the expense of building industrial capacity. Um, and, and broadly, I mean, there's not an approach to, to rebuild density um, amongst, amongst uh, union members. Uh, and when we look at like union density and, and the rate it's falling and, and we don't have a concrete or cohesive plan to work with unions to, um, to, to rebuild density in, in areas of, of, uh, of critical importance. So what you're saying, am I right in uh, interpreting that as uh, 
it, what's been going on is a top-down approach rather than a bottom-up approach. I wouldn't probably I wouldn't categorize it exactly like that. What I'd say is that what needs to happen, what I believe needs to happen, is for the ACTU and, and trades hall um, councils in each state to basically identify that there's a crisis, bring unions into the room, um, elected officials, rank and file, um, basically anyone who wants to be involved in building a fight back and actually sit down and work out how we can gear our resources towards growing our growing our unions around action. And so if we are to do that, um, we will improve the, the trajectory of the movement as a whole. Yeah, it's interesting because as uh, your experience at the NUW recently, most recently, has been with uh, agricultural workers and uh, with uh, visa workers and uh, immigrants and um, people who whose first language isn't English, a whole range of people who have been considered to be ununionizable. Uh, you've proven yeah. you're, uh, you've proven uh, this to be incorrect. Yeah, so I mean, one thing I spoke about on Saturday um, was I've actually got three union members walking towards me as as we speak. Was that um, part of our, the success of our campaign has been? Are you going? Hey, are you going? Are you going? Part of the success of our campaign has been to look at the political issues that impact our members, talk to them about it, and gear our political campaigning around that. And so um, I spoke on on the weekend around the Rohingya community, who yep. are a um, significant community in the southeast of Melbourne, who who came to this country by boat over the last five to six years, and we have a, a, a large number of the community working in our farms. And so that community has faced and experienced genocide, um, you know, over the last fifty years. But that escalated in in recent years, and so the union worked with that community to build, I suppose, a, a protest. Um, in the in the city last year around um, around the Australian government's complicit support of of, of genocide in Burma through um, the aid that it that it, that it gives to that um, that country's government. Um, I mean, and that's that's just that's a pretty I suppose aloof example. But I mean, we are we are working mainly with temporary migrants and, and people who uh are on visas working in our industry so we're gearing our political campaigning towards their issues but there's no reason you can't do the same thing in each industry in each union um, and actually make sure that the political campaigning is not electoral cycle campaigning it's deeper it's around people's issues and you know i'd like to see more of that out of our movement um and, and i think you'd get deeper engagement from workers if that was to, if that was the case, um, and you know, if you if you pair that with proper deep industrial organising, we're going to rebuild our movement. If you don't, then workers are going to shy away, no matter how much money you throw at a campaign, because it's just it's not talking to them; it's talking at them. It's also, uh, you know, it's all about how real power is expressed on the ground. I mean, we're talking yeah. about people's livelihoods and they need to protect themselves as well. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, our, I mean, our campaign has grown the membership in the, in the horticulture industry over the last four or five years, but there's nothing spectacular about what we're doing. We're just focusing our time on one-to-one conversations with workers and follow up 
on their industrial issues and you know issues issues in, outside of the industrial space if it prevents them being able to exercise their industrial so I think I think that basic um, focus um, if it was replicated in other industries um, you, you'd see more growth and you know it, it has been like I mean Vapor's campaign to uh, improve their density over the last five to six years has been impressive. Um, the CFMEU's manufacturing division over the last 12 months has uh, put a heap of resources back into organising and, and they're reaping results. Yeah, uh, we've, seen, we've seen a couple of uh, instances of uh, actual factories having wins in that area. Yeah, exactly. And RAFU is a good example where um, where that union has put time and resources into ignored and overlooked workers, you know, such as the teenagers working in McDonald's who, you know, have been terribly mistreated, um, had their wages stripped off them through, uh, you know, like disgraceful EBAs, and we're now starting to see like those workers fight back. And it's it's not it's not rocket science. Like it's it's just about. Uh, investing in the people who who represent our movement. I guess also it's about building trust. I mean, I know that's a word that's bandied around and uh, the big end of town likes to use it and it's become such a a miss, uh, a word that uh, makes your your lip cool because it's such a dangerous word, really. But in its real meaning, uh, like you said, one-to-one conversations with people who actually think that you are listening to what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, our, our union, the National Union of Workers, is, is in the, the, the process of moving towards a vote for a merger with, with United Voice to become, the, you know, a combined union. Um, and that's a pretty radical move. But from our perspective, uh, we need to do something radical um, to address the decline um, of density in our movement. And, and this 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 merger, if it goes ahead, would create a, a new union with uh, very different structures to what we, we see traditionally, um, not the federated structure that many of the unions have, which in some cases, you know, has tied our hands behind our back um, and, and stopped us from growing. So I think I think we need to think radically if we are to, um, you know, address what's been happening over the last, you know, since the, since the 1980s in terms of not just decline in membership, but decline in decline in strikes, decline in action in general, um, and 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 investing in people is the only way you're going to, you know, redress that decline. Can you talk to us about the difference in the structures, or is that something that's still being hammered out? It's, it needs to be voted on, but yeah. there's some radical some radical ideas there which have been presented to NUW members and United Voice members and, and at the end of the day it's those members that will make a decision on whether they want to push ahead with that. Okay and the uh, we've caught you at Griffith you're in Griffith at the moment aren't you? Yeah I am in Griffith. So, what are you up to? Um, yeah so a few things I've got a, a site visit on today to a, a packing shed um, a bit of a watermelon packing shed um, but we've got a, a migration clinic that, that we're running today so we run migration clinics around the grower areas around the country because a lot of our members face serious issues with their visas and are often, you know, spun in and out of the um, undocumented status because of 
the nature of the visas that they work under. Um, so we run these clinics quite regularly and um, we have an organising meeting on in Griffith to, tonight as well, which will be industry-wide meeting where uh, where workers can come along and share their issues with, with their fellow workers in, in other industries. Um, and, and that's something that's a bit of a model that we've adopted across the grower regions um, because we don't want to be hemmed in by the enterprise bargaining model. We want workers to be talking to uh, other workers across their industry. And, uh, you know, a number of unions do this. This is nothing radical or new, but I suppose it's, it's a little bit around approach to organising that if the approach is a little bit more um, industry-driven rather than site-driven, um, then you're going to have an industry-driven fight back rather than a site-driven fight back. Yeah, which is, uh, there's power in uh, numbers. Uh, the other thing, before I let you go, is uh, why why would people who are in a relatively comfortable position in the workspace, because this is yep. I come across people like this. Now, you're working with people who are going to be affected by the uh, cut and penalty rates on uh, July the 1st. Um, yep. uh, you, you cover people who are working under the hammer with... Uh, fairly exploitative uh, employers um, uh, and then you've got people who feel that they're comfortable you know that they're all right well I think if people are comfortable then we're just not having the right conversations with them and we're not delving deep enough into what their issues are um, I think I think we're asking the wrong questions because like if, if you look around the economy um, like everyone's suffering whether you're a, a public servant whether you're a, um, a construction worker that, you know, we're looking at the attacks on the, the CFMEU from the Conservative Morris government at the moment. Like uh, every every part of the economy, it um, might not be in, in, in a wage sense that, that conditions have been attacked, but um, our unions have been attacked and our ability to organise has been attacked. So if we, if, we, if we don't gear our conversations towards... Um, addressing that then yeah workers are going to ignore us and be bored by what we're talking about so i think it's like if people are not responding to what you're saying then maybe we need to look at what we're saying not the workers themselves that's it for stick together today thanks for listening stick together is produced at 3cr studios in melbourne and broadcast nationally on the community radio network The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377. I'd like to say that we are now in... uh, fundraising mode for Stick Together. Every year we need to uh, make uh, some money to ensure that we continue on air. If you're interested in supporting the program financially, then uh, you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and uh, click on uh, the donate online and go to our crowdraiser page we'd be very pleased to get your contribution anyway remember wherever you are whatever you do there's a union for you my name's Andy McLaughlin catch you next time